0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John, chapter 4. 1 John, chapter 4. We're looking this morning at verses 10 and 11. But I'll uh, begin reading in verse 7. 1 John, chapter 4. We will begin reading in verse 7. Hear the Word of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the scriptures and pray that as we study them this morning, that you would open our eyes. Pray, Father, that you would teach us from your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our Sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's Probably the most overused word in the English language, and as a result, having been stretched in so many different directions, it itself has probably become uh, one of the most meaningless words in the English language. Love. I love God. I love my wife and children. I love my friends. I love a rainy day. I love an ice cream cone. One might understand why someone learning English would have difficulty getting their mind around what our word love actually means. Now, of course, what gives the word meaning is its content and who better to give content to this word love than God himself, uh, who John tells us here in the passage we just read, God is love. Now, the Bible takes what in our language has become this, this amorphous, shapeless word love and gives it a skeleton, gives it a backbone, gives it meaning. Now, of course, there are other places in the Bible where this takes place. Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, gives that well-known description of love. He describes what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. And so on. One of the finest definitions or descriptions of love that there is, and of course, all the more powerful for being inspired by the Spirit of God. Well, in our text this morning, uh, admittedly chosen uh, with an eye toward Valentine's Day, the Apostle John puts his, himself puts content into this term law, just as Paul did to the Corinthians, John does here, and he does so not by defining it or describing it the way that Paul does, But rather, he does so by pointing us to the supreme act of love, the supreme demonstration of love. Now, in 1 John, he's been writing about the need for Christians to love one another. Uh, And again, we hear that word and we think, well, what does that mean? What does loving one another look like? Uh, And in fact, in this letter, he tells us that love, uh, along with two other things, sound doctrine, biblical doctrine, and obedience to God's word, that those three things uh, make up the marks of a Christian, the things that are evidence that we are believers in Christ, that we are true Christians. One of them is that our doctrine is biblical. Another is that our lives, not perfectly but perceptibly, uh, are in conformity to the Word of God, that we obey God's word, and we want to. When we don't, we repent. Uh, but the third mark of the Christian that John talks about in this letter, first John, is, is that of love, one of the distinguishing marks. But what does that love look like? Again, what does it mean? Well, he tells us here in in these two verses that we're looking at, and he begins by showing us in the first place the standard for love. What is the standard for love? Well, in verse uh, 10, he says, In this is love, and there's some question whether he's looking back or looking forward. Is he talking, in this is love, verse 9? Well, verse 9 talks essentially about the same thing verse 10 does. So he could be looking back. I think he's looking forward. In this is love, what? Not that we have loved God. The first thing he tells us is is what love is not. The standard of love is not. Now, there are a lot of things that we would say are not the standard for love, are not the the defining uh, demonstration of love, all kinds of things. But he singles out one of them. In this is love, he says, not that we have loved God. In other words, the standard for love is not what I demonstrate toward God. Why would he say that? Well, could be a couple of reasons. One, it's clear in his letter that Paul is writing to counter the influence of false teaching that has become evident among these believers. He wants to oppose that, their influence, teaching and doing wrong things and so misleading God's sheep. Earlier in this chapter, in chapter 4, the first three verses, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And that was a problem. Part of them were saying, well, he didn't really take a human body. He only seemed to be human. But he wasn't truly human. Well, John says, no. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming, and now is in the world already. Now, why does Paul say this, or or John say this? Well, it's possible that these false teachers were trying to validate their bad teaching by saying, well, you know, we love God too. You say, well, we love God, too. It's okay. We love God. We wouldn't want to teach anything wrong. That could be what was going on here. That may be why John is saying this, that, that that this is love, not that we love God. That's not the standard. Another reason he says this is that that's a merely human standard, that we tend to think more highly of our love for God, perhaps, than we should we should tell God we love him. I mean, obviously, we should love God, and we should tell God that we love him. Uh, it's a good thing to do, but sometimes we focus too much on our love for God, what I think toward God, what I feel toward God, or how I act toward God. And sometimes we tend to do that too much. Sometimes this even creeps over into uh, our worship of God. I'm thinking here particularly of some, some uh, music that we sing, some songs that we sing to God, that tend to focus on our love for God. not going to sing it. I'll give you the lyrics. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Now, let me say, first of all, I like that song. I gladly sing that song. But you have to admit that at least the first part of that song is focused far more on me, on, on the singer, than it is on God. I love you, Lord. I lift my voice to worship you. And you find this phenomenon in a, in a lot of worship songs. You actually do. And again, I like that song. I, I I would sing it, but I'm just pointing out this phenomenon that some have described as watching me worshiping you. I love you. I worship you. This is what I'm doing. Look at me. Well. John says that the standard of love is not our love for God. Now, let's put that on a human level. that Just make it horizontal. Uh, For example, I love my wife. It's great that I love Barbara. I should love Barbara as her husband, and I should tell her I love her frequently. You know, husbands, we shouldn't be like the grump who, when his wife complained that he never tells her he loves her, said, I told you I loved you and I married you, and if that changes, I'll let you know. No, we should tell our wives we love them frequently, often. And it's great that we love our wives. It's great that I love Barbara. But you know what really excites me? You know what really amazes me? Is that Barbara loves me. That's what gets me excited. I should love her. I do love her. But what really excites me and amazes me is that she loves me. Now, we take that and direct it toward God. It is great I love God. We should tell God that we love him as our Heavenly Father. But you know what should excite us? You know what should really amaze us? It's not how much I love God. It's that God loves us. That's what should excite us. That's the standard for love. Love at its best, love at its strongest, is not my love for God. Oh, your love for God. That wavers that tends to fluctuate. It tends to wax and wane. It tends to ebb and flow. It can be, in, it can be inconsistent. And that's why John writes, this is love. Not that we love God. That's a good thing, but that's not the standard for love. Rather that He loved us. Now that's what I want to sing about. Right? In, uh, the, the, the hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, uh, speaks of God's love for us. Love so amazing, love so divine, uh, demands my soul, my life, my all. That's my response to God's love, but it's God's love that the hymn celebrates. And I think you'll find that in the strongest hymns, the focus is not on me, watching me worshiping God, but simply on God and who he is and what he has done. That's what we want to sing about. What does it mean that God loves us? Well, John fleshes that out a little bit. He says, God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's look at each part of that. First, God sent his Son. Now, when you read the Bible and, and to read the Gospels, Jesus sometimes speaks of his coming into the world. In fact, just last December, in that Advent series, we looked where Jesus says, these are the reasons why I have come, and this is why I have come into the world. That was uh, something that Jesus himself did voluntarily, willingly, came into the world for us. Another place, he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who were lost. He came into the world, yes. That was an act that he did. But it's also true that he was sent into the world by his heavenly Father. Just a couple of examples, Matthew 10, verse 40 Jesus says, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. And John 3.17, we know John 3.16, John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus did come willingly, but it's also true that he was sent by his Father, uh, and even in his ministry, even in his prayers, he expresses uh, his submission to the will of his father, uh, that he he submits to his father uh, as being in authority over him and carrying out his his ministry Now in terms of being he 's still God he 's equal with the Father, but in terms of this mission, in terms of his humanity, he submits himself, and he says that the Father sent him into the world that the world might be saved through him. Now, motivated by love, Jesus came into the world. Motivated by love, God the Father sent his Son into the world for us. But how for us? Did he come to be our teacher? Did he come to be our example? Uh, Yes, both of those. Uh, In fact, Peter speaks of Jesus in 1 Peter of being our example in suffering. And he certainly, uh, we've studied the Sermon on the Mount, we've studied other, other, other places of Jesus' teaching. We benefit from his teaching. We benefit certainly from the example uh, in his life as he lived out. Now, those are vitally important for us as Christians, but they're not the whole of his ministry. And in terms of our salvation, they're not the main part of his ministry. Because you will never get to heaven listening to and obeying the teaching of Jesus. Try as you may. Do it as well as you can. And you'll not get to heaven by watching and trying to imitate the example of Jesus. You see, Jesus came to save those who were lost. And if he just says, hear my teaching and do it, you're not saved. You will die under the condemnation of the wrath of God for your sins. And if Jesus says, just just watch me and try to live by my example, you're not saved If all you do is try to listen to and obey Jesus' teaching, and if all you do is try to watch and imitate Jesus' example, Jesus, in terms of saving you, has failed because you can't do that. I can't do that. We don't do that. And that's why the main part of his ministry is the second part of this statement. God sent his son into the world to be a propitiation for our sins. Now, most of you have probably worked the word propitiation into casual conversation this past week. So it may be redundant to try to to go over that with you, what that means. Um, But no, that's not a word we typically use. The ESV uses that word. Some other translations uh, render it uh, an atoning sacrifice, uh, which I think is a reasonably good translation of it, and what the word propitiation means. Uh, The word has to do with dealing with, in this case, with taking care of our sins, removing our sins, and the problem they pose for us by satisfying the justice of God against our sins, which is what a sacrifice does, right? The wages of sin is death. Now, we could satisfy the, the wrath of God ourselves by dying under the judgment of God, but in the case of the good news of the gospel... Another has come, in fact, a substitute God Himself has provided to die that death under the judgment of God that you and I deserved, but he graciously takes our place and dies the death that we should die, and in so doing satisfies the, the wrath, the, the justice, the judgment of God against our sins, so that it's it's poured out, it's it's taken care of, it's gone. Justice has been satisfied. And that's the idea of a propitiation. It does have to do with removing our sins, but specifically removing the problem they pose by by satisfying God's justice. And so the word propitiation is one one well worth being familiar with, uh, even if it's not a common conversational term. Uh, and recognizing it it both removes sin on the human level, but vertically it satisfies God's justice, which must be satisfied if we are to be saved. It's not as though God just decides not to punish us for our sins and so lets us into heaven. Not at all. His justice toward you is perfectly, completely satisfied, but it's in the person of Jesus in his dying in your place that that takes place. So God's justice is never compromise. Jesus absorbs the full wrath of God so that you and I and all who take refuge in him by faith would never have to. And that's good news. That's what Jesus uh, did for us. God did for us the standard of his love, sending him into the world. Yes, but sending him to be that atoning sacrifice, that propitiation for our sins. Now, there are many parents today and through the years who have sent their sons off into war where they died for the freedom of a nation. Ours or others. And there are parents who have given their beloved children over as missionaries to other lands where they died, laboring for the eternal salvation of those who did not know Christ, but that they might know Christ. How is this different? A couple of ways. God sent his son, his sinless son, the only one who has ever walked this earth, who did not deserve to die in and of himself already, who did not deserve to die, not just to die, but to die under the judgment of God, in effect to suffer hell itself, For the salvation of his people. Not merely to make known the good news, but to be the good news. That's the difference. That Jesus, who was the only sinless human being, once Adam fell, who has ever lived on this earth, who was the only person who never, in and of himself, deserved death for his sins. So his his spotlessness on the one hand, but also the absolute uh, depths of his suffering that go even far beyond the horrors of war itself to the suffering of hell, to being the object of, of God's curse and God's wrath. That's the difference. That's why Christ and God sending Christ into this world to be that propitiation is the standard for love. But then John proceeds in the next verse, in verse 11, to tell us the requirement of love. If this is the standard, If this is the greatest act of love we could point to, the most supreme demonstration of love that could be known, then what does it require of us? Well, he tells us in verse 11. Verse 11 is a very simple statement, just a conditional statement. If this, then this. It's simple, but devastating. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, qualifications uh, no softening, just the implication of what God's love means for those of us who have received that love in Christ Jesus. He says, if God loved us this way, we ought to love one another in this way. In other words, he's saying as Christians, those who've experienced salvation, won by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, then we are to love one another the way that God has loved us. Now, he addresses this to them as beloved for a couple of reasons. One, uh, he, he is addressing them affectionately because that's a tall order. He's showing that he is, 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 has regard for them. He's not just trying to lay heavy burdens on them uncaringly, but recognizes the, the full implication of that command. He also puts himself with them. He doesn't say, you ought to do this. He says, beloved, as those whom I love, we should live in this way. He places himself under that uh, that implication as well. But notice what he says. He doesn't say, you know, we, we we should do it. You may want to consider loving one another as God loved you. He says we ought to do it. The word is one of obligation. Uh, in other contexts, it's used of financial debt. An obligation. Paul uses it in Romans 13, verse 9, when he says, Owe, owe no man anything except the uh, ongoing debt to love one another. An obligation. And that's what John is saying here. If we have received and experienced the love of God, then in that same way as he loved us, we also ought, we are obligated to love one another. It's not something we can take or leave, pick or choose. Well, how? How did God love us? And so how are we to love one another? We've already looked at God's love But let's put that in in terms of three words that kind of help us to draw out the implications of it for us. How has God loved us, and so how should we love one another? Number one, sacrificially. God loved us at cost to himself. He loved us at cost to himself. Giving his own son, giving the son whom he loved, giving that one with whom he had spent eternity uh, not only to live in this world, but to suffer and die uh, the way that he did. That was costly. Our salvation is free to us because Christ paid the bill. Because Jesus suffered in himself what we deserved. So yes, salvation is free for us for the believing, but uh, as in economics, there's the expression, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Your salvation did not cost you, but it did cost Jesus. It cost the Father dearly. Well, in the same way, our law for one another should at times be sacrificial. Uh, it should cost. There's another term we could think of here. It was beneficial. God loved us beneficially. It cost him, yes, but it also resulted in great benefit to us. It was a blessing to us. It was a help to us. Well, in the same way, our love for one another may at times be sacrificial, but the idea is that that sacrifice results in blessing for someone else, in in well-being for them, maybe in happiness for them, or the relief of suffering, uh, the minimizing of their suffering, whatever it might be. But the idea here of God's love was both costly to him and beneficial to us, the objects of his love. It was also, you'll notice, unilateral. and that In other words, it was coming from one direction to another direction. It was God's acting toward us, as Paul says, while we were still enemies. Christ died for us. Because, of course, only after the cross are we reconciled to God. And so we think of, of, of loving one another in this way, that this is a choice that we do toward someone else. You see, let's put it in the context of marriage. Husbands, your wife may not be acting in a loving manner toward you at any given point in time. That does not mean then that you are relieved from the responsibility of acting in a loving manner toward her. And the same, of course, wives is true for you. This kind of love is an act of the will. It is a choice to respond in a way then involves some cost to myself, which may or may not be financial. It may be emotional. It may be absorbing a wrong done for the sake of Christ in order to show uh, a desire for the well-being of the other person. It is a choice. It's an action that we do. Uh, and, and in this case, the unilaterally, God chose to act sacrificially for our well-being while we were still his enemies. It was a one-way street, at least at first. And the same is true in our love for one another. Because someone acts in an unloving way toward me does not relieve me of the obligation, whether it's toward my wife or my children or toward you, then to say, well, okay, they treated me badly. I can return uh, the same uh, shabby treatment toward them. It is unilateral. That's how God loved us, right? So also ought we to love one another. Now, as we look at that, you'll notice we haven't said the first thing. Talking about love... I haven't said the first thing about feelings. Our culture defines love as feeling. Read advice columns, if you dare, and you'll find sometimes this, this letter, dear so-and-so. You know, I, I've, my, my husband and I have been married for two years, but it's just not the same. I'm afraid I may have fallen out of love with him should we get divorced. That literally is a letter I read one time. I've fallen out of love with him. Our our society, it first thinks of love in terms of feeling. The scriptures first think of love in terms of action, doing. You say, well, that's so unromantic. Yes, it is. Loving someone when they are unlovely, loving someone when it is costly is unromantic, but it is real love. It's love with a spine. It's love with a skeleton. It's love with content. It's love with meaning. God is love, and he demonstrates love for us. This is an act of the will. It's about making a commitment, a commitment that by the grace of God, I will strive for the well-being of my brother or sister in Christ, even at cost to myself. Now, there's something interesting that takes place. Feelings of love usually follow actions of love. That's true in marriage. If you begin to act in a loving manner towards someone, whether it's a friend or your child or your parents or husband or wife or church member, you begin to do things for that person. You begin to pray for that person, which is sacrificial. That costs energy and time, and you're doing it for their well-being. You'll find that your heart begins to go out to that person. You begin to be concerned about that person. You begin to care about that person. You want to rejuvenate your marriage? Don't wait for the feelings. Start loving your husband. Start loving your wife. Serve them. Do things for them. Pray for them. Seek their well-being at cost to yourself. And don't be surprised if you find that you are beginning to feel love, maybe all over again, or maybe just strengthening. Because feelings of love usually follow actions of love. It's true in the church as well as in marriage. You see, God loved us because he chose to. God loved us and expressed that in acting toward us, not just in saying I love you or singing love songs to us or writing poetry to us or whatever. He did some of that too, but he acted. He committed to acting at cost to himself for our eternal well-being in Christ. And so let me ask you this, husbands, will you commit to loving your wife in this way? Wives, will you commit to loving your husbands in this way? Children, will you commit to loving one another in this way? Members of Old Peachtree, will you commit to loving one another in this way? In what way? And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, and we're glad he did, we also ought to love one another. Let's pray. Father, as the world celebrates love tomorrow, we thank you that we have the supreme demonstration of love in Christ Jesus. Father, we pray that as we have trusted in him, as we have been so overwhelmed by your love for us, that we would be willing, Lord, by your grace, to begin to overwhelm people with that same love for them that you have shown to us. Lord, we recognize how selfish in our sin we can be. We recognize how far short we will fall, even with our best intentions. But Lord, we pray that more and more in this area, as in others, we would begin to resemble our Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.